Tonight we come to uh, Mark chapter 7, the uh, second section of that chapter in our study of Mark's gospel. And uh, as you'll see here in a moment, uh, this, this passage has a lot of overlap with what we looked at last week, but yet is quite different in terms of its, its primary focus and emphasis. So let me go ahead and read for us this passage, and then we'll, uh, we'll spend a few minutes trying to unpack it. Mark chapter 7, I'll begin at verse 14, and uh, you can follow along if you'd like, it's in your worship folder. And he, that is Jesus, he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people His disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So we're continuing our study here of uh, the life of Jesus in, in the Mark in Mark's gospel and as we look at this passage, there are two uh, important controlling factors that I, I want to I just highlight for us as we, we jump in that have to do with where it's located, the context around this passage in Mark chapter 7. And the first uh, detail I want you to be aware of is that it's the longest uh, conflict passage between Jesus and the religious leaders in Mark's gospel. We've already encountered conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders earlier in Mark, but this is the longest one. And also, it occurs right before three episodes where Jesus encounters Gentiles. And we need to hear what's happening here is that this passage, while Uh, You could make the case there are a number of central passages in any given book. This one is particularly important when it comes to understanding the message of Jesus, particularly in light of his mission to the nations. That here Jesus takes on the religious leaders over the issue of ritual purity, of cleanliness, of and and what, what that really is is a metaphor to get at being acceptable to God, having access to Him, He takes up this concern right before He he moves on to three episodes with Gentiles. And not only is that the case, but we more so in in these first 23 verses, in verse 4 and 5 earlier in chapter 7, and then in verse 19, Mark adds the most editorial comment about his story here than anywhere else. 
which almost every Bible commentator looks to this chapter right here to say, this is what tells us the most about Mark's original audience, that they were probably, he probably wrote this gospel to Christians in Rome, Gentiles, non-Jews, who would not have been familiar with all of the Old Testament laws about ritual purity and cleanliness, and so he helps them understand. And in these verses, ten times, or in these ten verses we're going to look at, five times, the word translated defiled shows up. Five different times. And it picks up on that theme from earlier in chapter 7 when the religious leaders notice that the the disciples are, are eating with what they call defiled hands. And so this whole idea of cleanliness... Ritual purity, defilement, runs through these 23 verses again and again. And so the central concern of our passage tonight is this. What makes a person unclean? What makes a person unclean before God? And Jesus, he addresses this concern twice. He does it once in verse 15 when he addresses uh, the people as he He calls them to himself, but then he also addresses the same concern privately with his disciples. And he, what he says is, whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile them. Whatever comes, goes in from the outside cannot make a person unacceptable before God. Rather, he says, it's what comes out of a person. That defiles them. And Jesus teaches us something here that I think many people don't understand about Christianity. And I I would venture to guess that many Christians easily forget. And it's this, that God cares about the heart. And we saw this last week when Jesus quoted from Isaiah 29 verse 13 when he said, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. There's absolutely no mistaking that God cares about what you do and what you say. But he cares about that as it is directly related to the heart. As it's directly related to your heart. Therefore, here's what I want us to reflect on tonight. That unless you receive Jesus' teaching on true defilement, you will never experience his true cleansing. That's where we're headed. And I want us to, to look at three things that we need to experience that Jesus gives us from this passage. We need a paradigm shift. We need an accurate diagnosis. And we need a clean heart. So first, let's look at the paradigm shift that we need. If you look in verse 14, Jesus When he first addresses the people who are with him, he says, Hear me, all of you. Understand. And then, in verse 18, the same idea emerges again after his disciples have asked him about this parable. He says, Are you too without understanding? For Jesus, there is a a significant importance placed on, Do you understand what Jesus is talking about? 
And the implication is that we perhaps have to consider that we don't. That we need a paradigm shift. That our understanding of Christianity is in need of either correction or deepening. And a good example, I guess, a way to come at this is uh, a borrow from a sociologist whose name uh, is Peter Berger. Some of you may have heard of the term that he came up with quite a long time ago called a plausibility structure. A plausibility structure is, is what he calls conditions in a society that make certain beliefs reasonable, unreasonable. See, that's what Jesus is doing here when he engages with the religious leaders. And even through this story, he engages with us. Is he's engaging us on the plausibility structure of how we approach and believe what he has to say. And Jesus addresses this, but how does he do it? He does it with a parable. Interestingly, in verse 17, we, 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 we read there that his disciples ask him about the parable in verse 15. Well, what is this parable? Jesus, with the people there around him, he says to them, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, we've seen parables already in Mark, back in chapter 4. Chapter 4 was full of parables. The parable of the sower, among a number of others. And at the end of that chapter... Mark gives us another little editorial comment where he says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. That is, the people, the crowds. And as they, as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And that's what we see happening here. Jesus teaches the crowd, the people here, with a parable, but then... When asked about it privately, he explains it to his disciples. But what does a member, let me remind us, what does a parable do? How does it function? It functions as a lens that allows us to see the truth and to correct distorted vision. They allow us to see what we would otherwise not see. So if that's the case, then we need to see here that Jesus, or at least be open to the possibility that we don't see as we need to, or as deeply as we need to, or as clearly as we need to. And therefore, he gives us this parable. In the first half of the parable, in verse 15, when he says, nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. Well, that's fairly obvious what he's talking about if you were to look back earlier in chapter 7. He's referring back to the disciples eating with unclean hands or defiled hands. The idea being that if they eat without the right amount of washing, ritual washings, whatever they eat, they would become defiled by that. They'd become unclean. And Jesus is saying, no. There is nothing that goes in a person that can make them unclean. Even if their hands aren't washed, the dishes aren't washed, even whatever the kind of food they eat, we, we, we learn here that Jesus is declaring all foods clean. That's the first part. What about the second part of the parable, though? The second part of the parable, he says, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, there is no obvious reference here. What is that pointing to? Uh, 
I guarantee you, if we were in a middle school boys' locker room right now, they would have fun with this. <laughs> they would see in this, well, of course, the only thing that comes out of people is we all kind of know. And Jesus is pressing us to think about, well, that's not what he means. He isn't just talking about we eat food and then we go to the bathroom afterward. He's actually getting us to think more profoundly about what is inside. What are we really made of? You see, Jesus here is wanting us to think and reflect on what is it that actually most significantly impacts and affects who we really are and what our relationship with God is based on and made up of, what he most pays attention to. And so Jesus here, his point is simply this, that the problem of defilement, which is a metaphor for sin, it's not outside of us, but it's inside of us. Sin is not the result of our environment. It's not a result of our circumstances. It's not a result of what other people do do to us. Jesus here is saying that what makes us unclean comes from within. It comes out of the heart. And this is something that, uh, depending on kind of where you're from or, or how much religious background you've, you've experienced, sometimes you get the impression that really the Christian life is all about just not doing certain things, abstaining from certain uh, practices or certain situations or certain kinds of people or certain ideas. And that's not to say that 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 might not be wise or something. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is simply to say that abstaining from, uh, from certain things cannot clean your heart. It cannot make you right with God. And in fact, what Jesus is saying here, it leads to an unexpected reversal that we see here in verse 19 when he's talking to his disciples and he's almost uh, confronting them about how do you not see this? It's not what, what goes in a person that makes them unclean, but what comes out of them. And then he says, he declared all foods clean. What's happening here? Here, Jesus, what he says here is that What was thought to make a person unclean has been declared clean. All all food, all of the food laws in the Old Testament, Jesus has just said, don't apply anymore, which is a rather profound and bold claim to make. But then what was thought to be clean, that is, at least to some degree, the heart, is now declared unclean. Jesus, in... This paradigm shift is helping us to see that every human heart is unclean. And there are two, there are two, there's two reasons I think we need to listen to him about this. I want to give you two reasons and I want to give you a test for yourself. The two reasons that we need to hear Jesus in this parable and consider the paradigm shift he's giving to us is that every human heart wants to do two things. Every human heart wants to hide 
or to blame. To hide or to blame. And if you go back to the early chapters in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where we begin to see the story unravel, those two things are unmistakably present. And we find them repeating themselves again and again and again. That what we want to do is we want to hide and we want to blame. And those are just two ways of trying to undefile yourself. To hold at bay what Jesus is saying is actually resident inside. And here's a test for you. Here's a test about these two ways in which the human heart always functions. Does your public life match your private life? Imagine, how would you feel if someone, uh, your spouse or a close friend said, I would like to see all of your text messages. How would that strike you? Or what if somebody came to you and said, I, I, I would like to see all of your internet search history. How would that strike you? How does your private life match your public life? Because that's what Jesus is really getting at here. Jesus is honing in on the very heart of your private life. Now, you see, questions like those are never easy. They always raise the question, how well do we really know ourselves? Are we willing to admit what's actually true? How well do you know your own heart? And if the paradigm shift that Jesus wants to bring about in your life is going to take effect, it really does require that we receive his diagnosis of the heart. So we not only do we need a, a paradigm shift, it's not what comes in that makes a person unclean, but what comes out We need an accurate diagnosis of, well, what is it that comes out? Where does that come from? And in verses 20 to 22, Jesus answers that for us. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. But first, I want you to think with me for a moment. What does the Bible mean by the heart? One of the classic passages to help us understand this comes from Proverbs 4, verse 23, where the writer says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Here, the writer, he likens the heart to a spring. It's not a, a pond. In other words, it's a continual flow of life that out of your heart flows who you really are. Things that you think, things that you want to do, things that you feel. And that's a very different way of understanding the heart. Because really, in, in when we use the word heart in English, it's most often a way of talking about our, our feelings. Or our emotions. And, and that's, I'm not, that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's important to know that's not how the Bible understands the heart. When you come across this in the Bible, 
When the Bible uses the word the heart, it is a very rich and complex term that really does, can often be used to describe the mind. It can be used to describe the will, your volition. It can be used to describe your emotions. In other words, the heart, according to the Bible, is who you really are at the very core of your being. It is that part of you that gives expression to who you really are. And so when we come to this, where Jesus gives a diagnosis of the heart, he gives a devastating one, but it is not a new one. In Genesis chapter 6, this is what we read, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, this is the problem of the Bible. Evil actions rooted in evil hearts. And Jesus, his diagnosis for us here is that unless you deal with your heart, unless you're willing to receive his teaching, his diagnosis of what's really wrong with you, you will forever spend your life running, trying to find cleansing, trying to find a remedy, and you will never succeed. I remember as a campus minister at Duke University, I would ask students this question a lot to just to kind of see uh, what they thought about themselves and how, how they understood Christianity. And I would ask them, so would you say that you're a sinner? And almost, almost everyone, almost everyone would say, well, yeah. I, I, I'm, I make mistakes all the time. I don't do what I should be doing. And then I would ask them, well, do you think that you're wicked? And they, they would say, well, no, absolutely not. And I'll let you ponder that one. But Jesus' diagnosis of the heart right here is that in our own humanity, in our own human nature, we are wicked to the core. That's the diagnosis. And there is no remedy for it. There are no food laws, there are no purity rituals that can deal with this problem. And see, this diagnosis that Jesus gives, we need to see here that echoed in all of these things that he lists. Many, there, there are 12. There, it's, it's hard to know exactly how you might break them down, but there are six of them that more or less describe actions, and there are six of them that more or less describe attitudes. But however you want to organize them or, or um, refer to them, they all echo the Ten Commandments in some way or another. In other words, Jesus here is giving expression to the idea that the human heart is dead set against God's best for us. Dead set against His, his laws that He did not give to be a burden, but He gave for our good. That we would thrive. That we would become who we were made to be. And yet there is this problem that our hearts are defiled. And so the temptation too, when you read lists like this, there are several of them you find in the New Testament. You may be tempted to think, 
Well, I don't, some of these don't really apply to me. I can see, okay, pride, I get that one. Um, I, you know, I, I can see where I, I may, I'm, I'm covet here and there, or I may be envious here or there, but I've never stolen anything. I certainly have never killed anybody. But here's the thing that we need to see. That to discover even just one of these in your life is to be guilty of all of them. James chapter 2 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So there's no escaping. And let's just take two of them for an example. Let's take the one, uh, two I already mentioned, the one of coveting. Have you ever been discontent with your life? Have you ever envied somebody else's life? Or take pride. Have you ever felt superior to someone else? Or let me flip it on its head. Have you ever felt inferior to someone else? As you begin to peel back that onion the layers of your own heart, and you begin to see this diagnosis that Jesus gives, it begins to leave us pretty pretty helpless. There's, not, there's nowhere to turn. We're stuck with this diagnosis. And the passage ends, seemingly, in verse 23, all these things... These evil things come from within and they defile a person. And I, as I reflect on this passage, I thought, really, Jesus, says that's where you're going to end? I mean, this is, this is bad news. There's not a whole lot of hope in this at all. But here's where I want to I remind you of a basic, uh, a basic thing you need to know about how to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible in the storyline that it occurs in. This passage occurs in a storyline. And as we talked about, even I mentioned a little bit last week, that this storyline answers this question for us. It's meant to bring us to despair at the end of this passage. It's meant to bring you to a point of, I don't know where to turn. If this is true, I really am undone. But what do we see happen in this story already? The, the, the best example is when Jesus in chapter 1 encounters the leper, which we mentioned again last week. That's the closest story to what we see here. That Jesus has come. He has come to take your defilement upon himself. To bear it himself. And you see here we have Jesus Again and again, he is the solution that we're left with. There is nowhere else to turn than to him in this story. Because he's just already confronted and essentially denounced all of the religious traditions that are intended to deal with this problem. You see, Jesus has come, he has come to cleanse your heart. He has come to give you a new heart. And probably the clearest place that we could go to help us see this is in 1 John chapter 1. 
where in that first chapter, uh, John writes, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The only thing that can cleanse us is the blood of Jesus. That is, the power of His death and His resurrection at work in your life. Or to, to try to borrow from the imagery here a little bit, the gospel is a stain remover for the heart. And just think for a moment, how do stains tend to work? If you've ever been, you, you get food on your clothes, uh, or you're outside working in the lawn, or you're playing a sport and you get a grass stain, or an oil stain, or a food stain, how do you get a stain out? The only way you get a stain out is you have to have a chemical strong enough to weave its way into the fabric. And then usually you have to rub the fabric and let it soak and let it sit. Let it begin to break down whatever that stain is. And eventually, the stain is gone. You see, that's what we need to do with the gospel. When we read that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin... We are being told that as, as we work the gospel into our lives and allow it to sit there and soak, and we begin to see Jesus, His humility, His courage, His faithfulness, His selflessness, His suffering, His death, His loyalty to you, His promises to you, the stain begins to disappear a little at a time and you see this is a part of, of Christianity that I think often can get overlooked because for many people Christianity is well Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins which is true but he didn't come just to pardon you and then leave you to yourself to deal with what is most fundamentally in need of transformation he came to give you a complete salvation that he would remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, but that he would also send his spirit to take up residence in your life in those places where you are especially filthy, where the stain is the most defiant, where it is the deepest, where even perhaps you are the most in love with it. He has come to give you a new heart and it is his, it's His blood that can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how, how does this passage land with you? How does this paradigm shift that Jesus puts in front of us strike you? What do you make of that diagnosis of the human heart, of even your heart? What does it sound like to you when we read that Jesus can cleanse you. That He can bring healing to you. That He can, as it were, give you a new heart that loves what He loves. That seeks what He seeks. What, what, what can you do? Where do you start? Well, I'll give you two things. One, the passage I was referring to in First John begins when it says, if we confess our sins, 
the best place to begin is to admit that you're wrong and that Jesus is right. And when we do that, he promises that he will forgive, that he will cleanse. And if you don't really even know how to do that, the second thing you can do is go back to Psalm 51, which we read earlier tonight. Spend time reflecting on that. Because in that very psalm, David asked God to give him a clean heart. That's where all of us need to begin. Because when we begin to see what we really need, Jesus becomes glorious. He becomes beautiful. His bloodshed becomes really good news. And that's where he wants to leave us in this passage, is that there's nowhere else to turn but to him. So let's do that together. Father in heaven, we, we pray that you would take this passage and you would help us to see afresh what we need to see. That where we fail to understand your message and your mission, I pray that you would give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. We pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit to cleanse us and to forgive us. That we would experience the new life that you alone can give. And instead of this list of self-centered, self-absorbed, sinful attitudes and actions, we pray that you would replace them with the fruit of the Spirit, where there would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, among a host of other beautiful things that you, Lord Jesus, have promised to give us and to work out into our lives. And we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.